Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so here's what I want to do. <clears throat> we started at the very end of Acts 15 last week with Paul and Silas beginning their second missionary journey. Paul's second, Silas's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas wanted a missionary journey. They brought this young man named John Mark. He didn't work out early in the first journey. He went home. Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along on the second journey. There was a disagreement. This is the end of 15. And out of that disagreement, two missions groups split. Paul and Silas went north, and Barnabas and John Mark went like southeast. Uh, so we are at, in Acts 16, we're at the very beginning of the second missionary journey where Paul is about to go into Europe. And what's interesting about this journey is the way that God leads Paul through this journey. Now we're gonna talk about a ton of locations that are not familiar um, to most of us. And what I'd like to do before we get into the text is I'd like to walk you through the journey we're gonna to discover today on a map so that as we read it, you can reference that picture in your mind as we go through it. That way we're not constantly looking at scripture, then looking at a map, then going back and forth. So what I wanna start today is I wanna show you where they're headed just in this chapter. They won't finish the second missionary journey in 16, we're only getting halfway through, but I wanna show you this cool map that I put together to help you understand where we are going today. And buckle up nerds, because I got a laser pointer. and I didn't forget to pull it out of my bag like I did last week. So this is a map of Acts 16, Paul's second missionary journey. I apologize for Macedonia being off the charts. <laughs> um, I didn't anticipate how awful the, the projector has gotten with people hitting it with basketballs. So next week I'll just bump the whole thing down as we continue. But I added Jerusalem. You also get to see how shaky my hands are. Uh, I added Jerusalem down here at the bottom just as a reference so you know where we are. But this region, so Israel is right down here. This entire region right here is modern day Turkey. So if you look at a map today, that's the nation that's here, Turkey. And this nation over here is Greece. As you go up, you've got Romania over here, you've got Ukraine over here. But this is the region that Paul is going to be in. So Paul, his, his plant, his home, the place he started in is Antioch. And we know that because we've been going through Acts 15, 14, 13. We know kind of where he, his, his home plant is. This is where he starts most of his mission bases out of. So he starts here in Antioch. And what he's going to do today in 16 is he's going to take Silas and they're going to go a little bit north and they're going to follow this little path here and they're going to end up in Derby, and then they're going to go to the city of Lystra. Now those two cities should sound familiar to you because last missionary journey, those are the two cities they ended in. They went, the, the first missionary journey was down to here, then up to here, then up, like, actually it was from here to here, and then up through here, Iconium, uh, there was an Antioch over here, and then they went to Lystra and Derby, and then they turned around and they came back this way. So Paul is starting the second missionary, missionary journey by visiting the churches that he previously planted on the first missionary journey. And he's coming back to check on them and see how they're doing. 
Once he finishes in Lystra, he's not really sure where they're headed next. So we're told, no, so each of the, the places in black connected to a dot, those are an actual city, and these little areas in red, these are regions. And Luke, the writer of Acts, references both of these with no real direction on what he's talking about because his readers understood that. So we're gonna see some cities referenced and some regions referenced. And the first region you'll see referenced is Asia because once they're leaving Lystra, they're not really sure where they wanna go. In here in this region, Asia, not the same Asia that would be on the maps today, different Asia. So this Asia here contains some very interesting cities. The most prominent one you'll probably remember is this city called Ephesus. Okay, Ephesus is in this region, but Paul hasn't gotten there yet, hasn't planted there yet. He wants to though. And we're told that one of the first thing he wants to do when he leaves Lystra is he wants to go up here and start referencing or start hitting some of these areas in Asia, but we're told the Holy Spirit won't let him. Doors are shut, he can't get into Asia. So we're told that he starts heading north, he heads up to here to Mysa, uh, and as he gets up here, we're told that he tries to get into uh, Bithynia, he tries to go north, but as he goes north, we're told that a door is shut by the Spirit of Jesus. So as this journey is going along, I want you to reference, or I want you to kind of, kind of constantly remember in the back of your mind that who's guiding this journey? It's not Paul. Paul's got these desires that he wants to go in these areas, but the Spirit of God is shutting these doors saying, nope, not there, nope, not there. And it's helpful for us to understand how God is leading because sometimes he leads by closing doors. Amen? So he's closing these doors in uh, Asia, he's closing these doors in Bithynia. So they end up here at Troas, this is the port city. This is probably where he meets Luke, because at this point in the story, Luke jumps in and starts referencing, we traveled here and we traveled there. So this is probably where he picked up Luke. They went to, uh, and they had, he has this vision, I won't spoil the vision, but he has a vision that tells him, okay, we need to go over to Macedonia. So from Troas, he goes up to Samothrace here, he goes over here to Neapolis, and then he goes into this little city called Philippi. And this, it's not really a little city, it's, it's a booming city, and it's a trade city, and it's a cornerstone of the Roman Empire in this specific region, it's in the Macedonian region. And so this is where the majority of the, the last half of 16 is gonna take place. So we're a couple, five verses or so are gonna take place up to here, five verses or so are gonna reference getting up to here, and the majority of where we're talking about is gonna happen up here in Philippi. You with me? That dot's helpful, isn't it? Now I see why cats like it so much. <clears throat> Let's get into Acts chapter 16, verse one. All right, so Paul, he came also to Derby and Lystra, two cities we were talking about he visited on his original journey. And when he got there, a disciple was there named Timothy. And Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer in Jesus, but his father was Greek. So this is important to the story. Timothy's dad was Greek and his mom was a Jewish believer. And apparently, Timothy and his mom had gotten saved on Paul's original journey. So Paul's coming back and checking these churches, and one of the things that he finds is this young man who's full of faith. He's got a Greek dad and a Jewish mom, and they're believers. And uh, this is one of the byproducts of Paul laboring in this region. So verse 2 says, He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, which is one of those northern cities of Lystra. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. 
for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now we remember from the last, from last week that the Jews in this region were hostile. They actually created mobs to start, uh, they, in one, one of the cities they actually stoned Paul, they were constantly trying to create an uproar. And so on account of the hostility in this region from the Jews, Paul decides that it's time to circumcise Timothy. Verse four says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the council of Jerusalem that happened in the last chapter. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now, I referenced just a moment ago that in Acts chapter 15, there was this big monumental event called the council of Jerusalem. And if you remember from last week, the Council of Jerusalem was this gathering of all the apostles and all the elders. They were gathered together in Jerusalem and they were deciding on a major issue. Gentiles are now getting saved. What do we require of them for salvation? Do they need to follow the law of Moses? Do new believers have to get circumcised? Do you have to follow the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses? What do we require of these new Gentiles? And the conclusion that was reached at uh, that council was that Gentiles were not required to follow that specific law. They weren't required to get circumcised. The only uh, restrictions that they had were restrictions that allowed them to live at peace with their Jewish believers. But at that council, it was decided the only thing that determines whether you are saved or not saved is your faith. It is not anything you have done or will do. It is where you place your faith. Do you trust Jesus or do you not trust Jesus? That's salvation. So circumcision was not an issue. We're told in verse four that Paul is now taking this letter that the Jerusalem council had put together and asked to circulate, circulate, circulate around to the Gentile churches and give them this information. This is what the apostles have come to it seemed good to them and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So this is what's normal for us now. So Paul is circulating this letter to these churches and we're told that even though the decision has been made that circumcision is not important and Paul is bringing this letter and this new announcement to all the churches, we're told that he decided to circumcise Timothy. Now why did Paul decide to circumcise Timothy when it had already been decided by the council in Jerusalem, it's not necessary. Because the one thing that drove Paul his entire life was this. What does Jesus want? Not what I want, not what I desire. What does Jesus want? want. And whatever he wants, I will rearrange my entire life and those following with me around that ideal. And so here's the situation. You've got a young man who's half Jewish and half Greek, and Paul is going from city to city and he's visiting the synagogues and spreading the news of the gospel. At this time, there are public restrooms everywhere, and it is not difficult to tell whether someone who is claiming to be a Jewish man is circumcised or not. 
And so if Paul wants to break in and preach the good news, there is an automatic hurdle that has to be crossed, jumped over, surpassed by any Jewish man who wants to hear that gospel message. And Paul said, what does Jesus want for my life? He wants the gospel to be spread. That's what he wants. He wants the gospel to go forth. So because Jesus wants that, I am going to do everything I can to remove any possible obstacle from someone hearing the gospel. So he says to Timothy, Timothy, do you want the Jewish folks that we're going to meet in these cities to hear Jesus and not constantly in the back of their mind having to, be get, having to get over the concept that now this is not an issue? And Timothy's like, yes. I absolutely want that. I want these people to hear the gospel without me getting in the way. And Paul says, then it's time for you to have a little surgery. And he willingly did it because he was more interested in what brought glory to Jesus, what Jesus wanted rather than his own personal freedom. See, Timothy did not have to get circumcised to be saved. It was not an issue anymore. That was already settled. But Timothy said, it's still an issue for some folks, and so I will do anything I can to remove that issue as much as possible so that people can hear the good news of Jesus. I don't want you having to filter the gospel message through me. I don't want to get in the way. You following? And so this is kind of where I want to drive today's message. And it's a really simple principle. It's not really complex. Today's message, there's not a, a lot of finer points to it. It's not really a complex kind of message. It's very simple. As we study Paul going from city to city on this missionary journey, we're going to walk away with the sense that this guy, he lived with one core belief, and that is Whatever Jesus wants, that comes before whatever I want. And I'm going to do that so often in my life that eventually what I want just becomes what he wants. That's it. That in decision making, whether we're going to this city or this city, what we do when, we're, when we are in this predicament or this predicament, every season, every moment in life boils down to asking yourself this one question, what does Jesus want? Now, if you've been around Christianity for any amount of time, you remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this little catchphrase, people wear little braces, what would Jesus do? I feel like that's a little disingenuous because you're not Jesus, so it doesn't matter what he would do. You don't get to do that because you're not him. But I think that there's something along the same lines that, are, that will be helpful for us in decision-making as we walk and follow Jesus in our lives, and it's this. Constantly asking yourself this one question. What does Jesus want? And in that is loaded with this meaning. What decision could I make that would magnify Jesus above every other thing in my life? What could I do that would get me out of the way so that people would stop listening to me whine about my personal preference or, or the way I like things? What could I do to get myself out of the way so that Jesus can be lifted higher than every other thing when it comes to my life? 
What can I do to magnify him above every other thing? Most of us have these big decisions in life, we have these small decisions, but I'm arguing that in every one of those, it can be much easier when you make that decision if you boil it down to one simple question. What brings Jesus the most glory? What does he want? Not what you want, not where you want to go, not, what, not who you want to marry, not what you want to spend your time and your money on. If you're really, really going to follow him, that stuff doesn't matter. That stuff has to be put into the grave with the old flesh, the old man. If you're genuinely, really passionately going to follow him, here's what it always comes down to. I'm a steward of your kingdom. My time, not my time. My money, not my money. It's your time, and it's your money, and it's your resources. So how can I best be a steward? What do you want? That is the umbrella that I want to put over Acts 16 as we watch Paul making decisions as he travels. So let's continue. We're going to go to verse 6. It says, So they left that region, and they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to uh, Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So by passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And while they were in Troas, Paul had a vision. And in this vision, in the night, a man from Macedonia was standing on the coast, and he was urging them, saying, come over here to Macedonia and help us. Now, Macedonia is Greece. This is Europe. So this is the first time in history that the gospel is being spread into Europe. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go out to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage, voyage to Samothrace, and, follow, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. That we, previously that it had been they were traveling, now it's we, so we know Luke he picked up on the journey here. Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Look at that. Women's Bible study. <laughs> One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. And the city, she was from the city of Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods. And she was a worshiper of God. And the Lord, he opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized and her whole household as well. And she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, please come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So when Paul was, let's pause there, Paul was finished visiting the original churches he had planted, and he has to decide what's next. 
And in order to decide what's next, he essentially asks the question, well, Jesus, what do you want? Where do you want to lead us? And so he starts paying attention to open doors and also closed doors. Jesus closed two doors, and we don't get any sense from Luke that Paul is pouting and getting frustrated, that he's given his time, he's given his life to this thing, he's left all of his friends in Antioch, and now he's wandering out here, and I can't get a single person to listen to the gospel message. I'd love to go over to Ephesus, but no, we can't do it. I'd love to go north. No, we can't do that either. It just seems like everything I'm trying to do for God, he's not letting me do. There's no sense in that. The only sense that we get from from the writing here of what Paul is doing is that he is driven by this understanding that the Spirit is the one who's doing this work, and Jesus will will lead us wherever he wants us to be led. And the first city he wants us to be led through this sense of the vision, we've got two closed doors, now we've got an open door, this vision of this man saying, come over to Macedonia. They go over, and the first thing they do when they get into the city and they start surveying everything, they say, let's go down to the river, because that's typically where a lot of the synagogues are placed. That would be a gathering of much of the Jewish men. We get down there. Guess what? No Jewish men. Just a women's Bible study. And so Paul starts preaching the gospel. It's interesting. Paul's not like, where's your husbands? Paul preaches the gospel. He just preaches to these ladies, and we're told that Lydia, a businesswoman, who specializes in purple fabric, which is a very rare fabric dye at the time. She probably was a very wealthy businesswoman. She hears the gospel message and she gets transformed. Now my question here is how did the gospel spread? It spread exactly how, where, when Jesus wanted it spread. Because Paul is asking this question, he's been driven by this core belief that Jesus is going to do what he wants to do, and all I have to do is listen to participate, he gets to participate in one of the greatest spreading of the gospel up until this point. Now, up until this point, Paul didn't even know Lydia existed. Paul knew very little about Philippi. All he saw was this vision, a simple open door. And the question was, Paul, are you going to walk through this? Well, what does Jesus want? He wants you to walk through this because the gospel needs to be spread. Fine, that's all I need to know. I'm not interested in itineraries. I don't need to know plane flights. I don't need to know when ships are leaving. All I need to know is, is this what you want me to do? Yes, then I will follow this. And whatever happens after that, and that's just gravy. How he works it is the joy in the middle of following him and doing it. And so up until this point, like Lydia didn't know Paul existed. Paul didn't know Lydia existed. But guess who did know Lydia existed? Jesus. Jesus knew Lydia existed. And Jesus knew that Lydia would be down at that river studying the word of God on that specific Saturday. So the question I have for us today is when we're trying to understand how Paul lived his life, 
and use that as an example for how we can start gleaning some information from that. Is it, wider, is it wiser for us to trust our own personal experience and our instincts and things you've gone through and, and the education that you have and, and how many resources you have available to? Is it wiser to trust that when you're making decisions or is it wiser to trust Jesus? That seems like a silly question when I pose it that way. Clearly, it's the guy who already knows everything. Trust him. The problem, and the reason why we, well, the reason why we don't do that more, most often is because that requires us to relinquish control. See, when I'm making decisions off of my own resources, and I'm saying I've invested in this thing, then I inherently tell myself, well, I get to make the decisions. This is my house. These are my rules, and I'm gonna make the decisions that I think make the best sense for me based off of my experience or what I've learned or really whatever I want at this given moment, but I've got bad news. Sometimes the, the decisions that you would make are not the decisions that Jesus would make, and they will actually lead you in the wrong direction. So when you start asking this question, when you're making big decisions, should I make this large investment and purchase this house that I could barely afford, but it's the perfect dream house? Well, ask yourself 10 years down the road, would it glorify Jesus that you're working extra hours just to make a payment on a home rather than being present with your family to disciple your kids? What does Jesus want? Here's a tough one. You're dating somebody. I really love this person. I really like them. They make me happy. All right. Would it magnify Jesus if you two joined in a covenant of marriage for the rest of your life? Is the way that your, your relationship being built right now, is it bringing glory to Jesus? Would his kingdom be expanded even further if two became one and the resources were pulled together so that the glory of Jesus would be magnified or is the only thing that would be satisfied is your flesh? This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to surrender all, and to say, I don't want what I want. I want what he wants. I want to magnify him and whatever he wants. It may not necessarily be what I want, but I can change what I want to match what he wants. This is how difficult it becomes. This is why Jesus says, it's a narrow road, man. <laughs> this isn't the one everybody's walking on. Because if you walk on this narrow road, what's required of you is sacrifice, forsaking, walking away from everything that you think makes you, you. On faith that what he gives you will be infinitely better than anything you could have made for yourself on your own. And let's go to verse 16. I'm gonna, this is a disclaimer. I'm gonna make a little sidebar here on 16 and it has nothing to do with this message. It's got nothing to do with trusting Jesus. It's got nothing to do with us saying, okay, uh, you know, what does Jesus want? It's just an important thing that we've come across it. We've, we've, we've tripped up on it here on the scripture and I don't wanna forsake this opportunity to talk about the dangers of fortune telling. So let's get to verse 16. 
Verse 16, it says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. What's, what's that in the Greek? She had a demon. She was demon possessed. In Greek, that actually means she had a demon of Python. That's the literal Greek translation, and it's connected to the, the temple of Apollo and their understanding of how Greek mythology worked and all that other stuff. But that spirit of divination, she essentially had a demonic spirit. And this demonic spirit brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Let's pause right there briefly. I want to sidebar about what's happening here. This little girl was demon possessed and she was owned by someone and her owner made money off the fact that she was demon possessed. Look, When the kingdom of God is not reigning in the darkness and shedding light in dark areas, this is what you get. When the glory of Jesus is held back and refused to be allowed to spread in, even in the sense of something like common grace in a country or a city, this is what you get. You get people who profit off of the bodies of little girls. This poor little girl was demon-possessed and her owners profited off of her by fortune-telling. Now, how how were they able to profit off of fortune-telling? Can this girl see the future? Can demons see the future? I think it's a valid question that should be asked and I think can be answered from Scripture. So I just want to take just a few moments, this is not the point of the message, but I think it's helpful for you to understand scripturally how this kind of thing worked in the first century and still works today. You follow me? I don't lose you. There is a realm that we can see. It's called the physical realm. Everything you can see is in this realm. Even some things you can't see, like the wind. It's all in this physical realm. You can experience it with your senses, you can see it, you can touch it, you can smell it. But biblically, we're told that there's a completely different realm that you can't see. It's a spiritual realm. And in this realm resides an entire host of divine beings who are nothing like human physical beings. There are spirits, there are, spirits, there are angels, there are fallen angels, demon spirits, And we're also told through some of the prophets that there's not just angels and spirits, there's also these creatures. That they're not even like angels, they're just creatures. There's four of them that are surrounding the host of heaven, and they've got all kind of weird bodies. You know, lion heads, eagle wings, it's wild. So there's this spirit realm, and both of these realms essentially kind of lay right on top of each other in the sense that we're told in Hebrews 12.1, that there's this host of heaven who's watching us, people who, of faith who've come before us, they're cheering us on in our journey, they can see us, they can watch the decisions that we're making, they're cheering us on as people of faith. We also can glean from Job 1, 6 through 12, that some of these spirits from this realm 
are, go before the presence of God, and there's this challenge to take on this guy named Joe, but before that setup is even there, we're told that these spirits are kind of wandering the earth, and they're watching the, 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 the world of man, and they're observing things. So we've got, so we've got previous uh, dead saints who are watching the, uh, the physical realm. We've got spirits who are watching the physical realm. And guess what these demonic spirits who are watching your lives are doing? They're taking notes. They're taking notes on the things that trip you up. They're taking notes on the things that bring you joy, the things that distract you. And they're going out of their way regularly to put those things in your way to trip you up because the the end goal of the kingdom of darkness is one thing, to not follow Jesus. Look, the kingdom of darkness, their end goal is not to get you to go to some witchcraft party and like recite incantations, right? And worship the devil. That's not their goal. Their goal is to just get you to to develop an affection for the things of this world so that you have no appetite for Jesus. And so they're taking notes and they're watching the things that we're doing. Now we're also told that another thing that demon spirits can do is they can talk through people. And we see this when Jesus gets confronted in Mark 8 with this man who's possessed by this legion of demonic spirits. And Jesus is talking to this guy, and it's not the guy responding, it's the demon spirits. So let's do some systematic theology and lay a couple things that we understand from Scripture. There's this other realm, it's observing the physical realm, and sometimes there's this breach of this realm where demonic spirits possess human beings, and you've got this instance of a demonic spirit possessing this girl, and she's making her owner's money by fortune-telling. Well, here's how this works. You've got a little girl, She's possessed by a demonic spirit. And this demonic spirit can see what's happening in people's lives. So this, this guy, let's just say his name is like John. He goes to the grocery store. He's got some things going on at home with his wife. And he just feels like he needs some direction in life. So he goes to this little girl, this fortune teller, and he says, I just need you to tell me, like, should I stay married to my wife or should I divorce my wife? Because things aren't going really good. And this demonic spirit who's been observing the frustrations that this guy's got, he speaks to this little girl and he says, in a fortune-telling way, it's a crystal ball, I see you were at the grocery store today. Well, that's not, that's not special. Like anybody who could have seen that could have saw that coming. Demonic spirits see that. And I, and I see that you're having trouble with your wife. They connect one or two dots of things that they know, and then they make this massive leap about something they don't, they don't know, but they have now convinced the person that the first two things are true, so the third thing's gotta be true, and they say, you're definitely gonna have to divorce your wife or you're gonna die. And this person leaves, and he's like, oh, okay, okay, I've got, I don't have a choice. This person told my future. Look, there's only one being in the entire universe who can tell the future, and that's God who authored the future. Demons can't tell the future, but they can lie to you in such a way that convince you that you've got to follow their lead. There was a young lady uh, connected through the church, uh, not this church, but a few years ago, I had a conversation with her. She was going through a situation where her and her mom were not doing well, and they hadn't spoken for over a year. 
And this young lady, she had uh, Ill, Ill feelings towards her mom, and she was trying to have this nice vacation on the beach. And she called me the night this happened. She's like, you're never gonna believe what just happened to me. And I was like, lay it on me. I've heard it all. <laughs> I bet I will believe. So she's like, I'm sitting around the fire at this beach with my kids, and there's this you know, older woman sitting over next to me. And all of a sudden, she leans forward and she says, your mother's gonna die in six weeks. She's like, and now I'm petrified. I'm still on vacation and I can't think straight. I'm worried that my mom's gonna die even though I haven't talked to her in over a year. And now, my, my, now I'm stressed and, and now I can't enjoy my time with my kids. I'm like, let me, let, me let, you, let me let you in on how this works, all right? The kingdom of darkness knows that you're on the outs with your mom and knows that there's some unforgiveness and there's some issues going on in that situation. And so what, the, what, what they did was they started messing with you and pushing your buttons because what they want more than anything is to sow dissension and to cause you to not enjoy your vacation with your children. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go ahead and call it a lie. I'm gonna tell you it's not gonna happen and I'm literally gonna count forward six weeks in my calendar and I'm gonna put an event on my calendar that says your mom's death. And I'm going to call you on that day and we're going to see if your mom is still alive. So there's literally nothing you can do about it. Go enjoy your vacation and ignore the fact that the kingdom of darkness is trying to mess with you. And also go forgive your mom and talk to her. Well, guess what? Six months passed. I called this person on that date. Surprise, their mom's still alive. Still alive today. This is how it works, and it works this way because human beings, we, we have this sense that we've got to get connected to something greater than what we have control over right now. And if there's something outside of our control, there's something we can do to get control of it again. And so we do things like read horoscopes, we go through the paper and we start reading some astrology, we go to fortune tellers, and I wanted to bring this out today because I wanted you to understand that even though it happened in the first century, this is not something that's disappeared today. It's still happening today. The kingdom of darkness wants to profit off of your fear. Don't let them. Let's go to verse 17. So she followed Paul and us, so this demon-possessed girl, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High. And they proclaim to you the way of salvation. I'm interjecting that sarcasm because that's what she was doing. She wasn't speaking truth. She was mocking. This demonic spirit was mocking the work of God. And she kept doing this day after day after day. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I bet, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. That little girl was free. Maybe for the first time in her life, she was free. What did the people think? When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Nobody was happy this little girl was free because the money dried up. Verse 20, when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. 
ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All for setting a little girl free. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's not what I would have been doing. (laughs) But it's what they were doing. And why were they doing it? Because the prisoners were listening to them. Paul's asking himself, what does Jesus want? Does he want me to be mopey? Does he want me to complain? No, there's prisoners listening, so I'm going to do what he wants, and he wants the gospel to go forth, so I'm going to sing my heart out while I'm in these chains. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Well, that's a problem if you're running a jail, (laughs) right? Doors are gone, no one's shackled. The jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because that's the only thing he can do in that situation because he supposed the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we're still here, all of us. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling, he fell down in fear before Paul and Silas. And they brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? How did he know to ask that question? Because he had been listening to Paul and Silas saying about being saved for the last two hours. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and baptized them. And, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. So he brought him out of the jail, washed his wounds, brought him home into his own house and set food before him and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Hallelujah. So for those of us who are keeping track at home, we've got a business owner and her family is now saved. We've got a former slave girl who's now set free. And we've got a prison guard and his family. And this is the foundation of this early church in Philippi who will one day get a letter from Paul titled Philippians. On Paul's best day, he could not have predicted this eclectic group of people being the foundation of the first church plant in Philippi. But you know who did know? Jesus. And this entire marvelous story about how this church got planted. And we're told later when he writes to this church how they didn't just get planted and they were healthy. They were one of the core churches of funding his further missions. He got to go further in planting churches because of how faithful financially that this church was to his mission. And all of it was because Paul chose to live his life with one core belief. What does Jesus want? Not what I want, not where I would go, but what is, what is the greatest for him? What, what would magnify him the most? What, what could lift the gospel higher than anything else? And whatever the answer to that question is, that's the thing I'm going to do 
with my life. Now go to verse 35. This is when the, when the day was done, uh, when it was day the next morning, the magistrate sent the police saying, all right, let's go ahead and let those boys go. And the jailer reported the words to Paul saying the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. This is what Paul said. Um, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. If you're a Roman citizen, you don't get beaten without a trial. You go before your peers. You don't just get beaten in the streets. They're Roman citizens. They were beaten in the streets. They've thrown us into prison and now they're just gonna throw us out secretly. So the last thing on everybody's mind is that those Christians are a bunch of troublemakers. <laughs> no, no, no. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these things back to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens because they done messed up. <laughs> so they came and they apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So we learned an interesting piece of information from this end of the text is that Paul was a Roman citizen. So he had legal rights to go through a trial and not just be assaulted in the public square. Why didn't Paul use those credentials when the mobs are starting before the prison even happens? The moment you see everyone's grabbing you and bringing you before the magistrate, why don't you say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Why not speak up, save yourself? Because Paul's core belief was, I'm not interested in saving myself. I'm interested in whatever Jesus wants. And so I'm not gonna use even the preferences that I have to get myself a better life. I'm simply going to let him have his way. And I'm gonna let them take me to jail because there might be somebody in jail that needs to hear this message. And there was. So he didn't use it before, why does he use it now? Because before he leaves that city, he wants to make sure that the the Christians who are now in, planted in that city, who live there, Lydia, the jailer, this little girl, that they're not gonna be associated with the stigma that Christians are the ones who are raising a bunch of ruckus and causing the economy of the city to crash because of their beliefs. So Paul uses his own credentials, not for personal gain, but for lifting up the gospel of Jesus. I'll use this advantage I have as long as it magnifies Jesus, as long as it furthers the gospel. Because I don't want these people who we've left in this city to have to struggle with the misrepresentation that we had in this city. So send those magistrates to us personally and let them know who we are so we can get an apology face to face so that Lydia and her family doesn't bear some repercussions for what we've gone through. And they left and they fellowshiped and encouraged one another, and then they departed to continue on their journey. Now I've shown you from Acts 16 that every step of this journey, Paul is modeling one question. What does Jesus want? What does Jesus want? And I wanna contrast that with the questions we usually ask. What, is, what do I want? Where do I wanna go? Where do I wanna spend my time with? What do I think 
this church should look like, what I think my family should look like, who do I think I should be with, who do I think I should spend my time with. Paul is modeling a completely different radical lifestyle. And what he's saying is if you want to follow Jesus, the first thing you should get in your mind is this question that drives all other decisions. What does Jesus want? Now, I've counseled many people over the previous years of ministry, and one of the big things that, pe- that keeps coming up frequently whenever I'm counseling people is this one question. I, I don't know what to do. I've got this big decision, and I don't, don't I'm, I'm confused. I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to do. This is my advice to them, and this is my advice to you as we close today. Whether it's a big decision or a small decision, it should always be made through one lens, and that is what does the king of your life want? And if you can start asking that question, I guarantee you the decisions that you'll start making in your life will start falling in line and start making more sense. But the longer you, you continue to ask yourself, what, what, do, what do I want? What do I want out of life? How do I seize the day? You're constantly going to stumble over your own shoes because what you want is almost never what Jesus wants unless he's transformed you and your heart is in line with him and what you want is what he wants. So, trust that God knows more than you and lean on that in prayer. When you say, Lord, I'm trying to make this decision, but I'm not sure what choice to make. Will you please guide me by showing me what you want and I'll just do that. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless. 